Welcome to the First Century Church Podcast. My name is Stephen Wilhoy, and I'm the lead pastor at First Century Church, and it is an honor to have you with us today. The goal of the podcast is simple. We want you to be encouraged, challenged, and inspired to go further in your faith than ever before. If you'd like more information about the church, you can visit our website, firstcenturykc.com. And if you happen to be in the Kansas City area anytime soon, we'd love to have you join us for one of our live gatherings to connect with you in person. Again, thanks for joining us today, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. So we're going to continue a series that we've been in. This is the third week now. It's called Friends, Brothers, and Others. We are, this year, if you didn't know, we're working through the Bible front to back chronologically every weekend, and so we are rolling our way now through the New Testament, which is mainly letters. Our previous series was letters that Paul wrote to churches to give broad instruction. These letters, some are by Paul. We'll stop, we'll finish Paul today, his last letter today, and then we'll move on to other people. So the title of the series indicates that these letters are either written by friends of Jesus or followers of Jesus, or in today's case, from someone to a friend. It's a very unique letter that we'll talk about today. Um, Next week is the others. So next week will be in the book of Hebrews. We don't really know who wrote that. Uh, the, it's, a very uni- it's the most Old Testament, New Testament book, really, in a lot of ways. And so we'll talk about that other sort of category. And also the brothers, we'll talk in a few weeks about the brothers of Jesus who happen to also write some New Testament letters that we have in our Bible. And so that's what we're looking at today. And again, we're going to talk today about a, a very personal letter that Paul wrote to a friend named Philemon. Now, you may have heard that name pronounced different ways. Maybe you've heard Philemon, or if you're into like light bulb, maybe you say filament. You know, I don't know. Uh, Maybe if you're into fancy meats, you say filet mignon. That's how you pronounce his name. Uh, If you're from Jamaica, maybe you say filet mon, you know. um, Whatever, there's all sorts of ways to say the name. Philemon, some people might say, I'm going to say Philemon, maybe, or Philemon, or whatever. If I switch, that's why I give you a heads up. I'm talking about the same guy, even if I say his name five different ways. Uh, So there we go. So this letter to Philemon is the third shortest book in the entire Bible. And it's the shortest letter from Paul, specifically. And what's most unique about it is it's the, by far the most personal letter that Paul wrote. It's really the most personal book. That's what makes it unique. It's the most personal book in the entire Bible. It is from one person to one person about one specific event that they're facing in their life. So although it's short, we're going to see today there's a lot that's in this short book that we're going to cover today. And although it's extremely personal, we're going to see it's very universal. Like all of Scripture, this letter, for some reason, the Holy Spirit decided to inspire Paul to write it in such a way to be included in the canon of Scripture. And so with that being said, with the personal nature of it, we still, a couple thousand years later, in a different time and place in the world, can learn from and apply the truths that we'll see in this short letter from Paul. And as we go through this letter, we're going to read most of it. We're going to break it up into into chunks here. And we're going to look at four truths in our lives that happen because of the gospel. That's the main theme, the main title today is because of the gospel. We'll see from this letter from Paul to Philemon, four truths in our lives that are true because of the gospel. So let's jump right into it and see what Paul says to us today. The first truth about our lives because of the gospel is we are made someone new. Because of the gospel, we are someone new. 
So we're going to skip the introduction that Paul gives in most of his letters. We're going to skip to Philemon verse 4 and read verses 4 through 7. So there's only one chapter, so I'm just going to refer to the, the numbers or the verses in this letter here. So Philemon verses 4 through 7, Paul says at the, at, near the beginning of this letter, he writes, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. Now, what's interesting about this letter and about this person to whom Paul is writing, we know nothing else about this person's life. Apart from this one event that we'll explore today, we know nothing about Philemon's life. And we certainly don't know anything about his life before he became a Christian. But it doesn't really matter, and Paul tells us why. And it's because what happened before Philemon met Christ is irrelevant now that he has met Christ. And what we see here are some evidences of his faith. We see it's a genuine faith, first because Paul says, I keep hearing about your faith. So it's not just... So faith for Philemon wasn't a one-time prayer that he prayed at a church service one time, and it didn't affect the rest of his life. But that's not what faith really is. Philemon knew that because Paul keeps hearing about evidences of his faith over and over. It's not just a one-time thing, or it's not just a phase that he was in for a while, and then he reverted back to his old, former way of life. Paul says, no, I keep hearing over and over and over about your genuine faith. And one of those markers that Paul mentions is, he says, you have a love for God's people. What's interesting is if you think about maybe yourself before faith or most people before they come to faith in Christ or apart from faith in Christ, at best, we are apathetic toward Christians. Maybe even at best, you would say we sometimes admire certain Christians, even if we're not one, man, they're a really good person, but that's as far as it goes. And I think most people fall into the, where I'm just apathetic. I don't really care. That church thing is fine for you, but it doesn't fit for me. And it works for you, but I need something else or something different. Or, or that's kind of weird, and I'm not going to get into that. So I think at best, apart from faith, people are apathetic. But at worst, people are uh, antagonistic toward faith, apart from Christ. They're poking holes in your belief systems, and they're trying to make you, they're trying to discredit what you believe. They're trying to find all the flaws and faults and anything that you do to say, oh, you don't really believe what you say you believe, do you? Right? So at best, we're apathetic apart from faith, and at worst, we're antagonistic toward people of faith. But what Jesus tells us, if you look at John 13 and John 15, he's having this uh, discussion with his disciples during and after the Last Supper, right? The night he's betrayed, he's, he says this. He says, I'm giving you guys a new commandment. So now he's already given us a commandment as to follow Jesus. He says there's two greatest commandments in all of Scripture. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, which then he tells, who is my neighbor? Everybody. Okay, so love God, love people. But then to his disciples here, he says, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Love one another. So apart from faith, we're either apathetic toward or antagonistic toward people of faith. But as people of faith, we're commanded by Jesus to love each other, love people of faith. And then in John 13, he tells us the thing that I believe Philemon's living out here that Paul is noticing. Jesus says the significant marker that people, others outside of the faith, will know that you're my followers is not your good works, 
not your church attendance, not your generosity, but your love for one another. Again, Jesus says, the way that people will know that you love and follow me is that you love other followers of me. And so clearly Philemon is living this out. Paul notices this over and over again. Another marker that Paul mentions here that, he's a new, that Philemon's a new person is because of his generosity, which is a key component to a life of faith. When, again, when you read sort of the blueprint, Acts chapter 2, part of our core value is, one of our core values is generosity from the end of Acts chapter 2. You see the same language in Acts chapter 4. The early church was generous. They would sell their own personal possessions in order to have funds to help each other when they hit a hard time. And so generosity was a key component of this new movement in the first century. It was so strange that even when you read extra biblical accounts of that time and place in the early Roman world, one of the markers that comes up in letters from different people who are not Christians are they are abnormally generous with each other. Like the rest of the empire doesn't work this way. They're not relying upon the government to help them. They do it for each other. So the fact that they served one God, that was a weird thing to the Roman empire. That was odd. But then this, another huge marker was their generosity, their extreme generosity, which clearly Philemon is living out. It's possible, we don't know this, but it's possible that Philemon helped to fund Paul's ministry. And one thing that we do know about his generosity is he opened up his home to host the church in Colossae. So Paul wrote a letter to the Colossians that we'll talk about in a minute. The church that Paul writes that letter to meets, Paul says at the beginning of this letter, the church that meets in your home. So Philemon, we would assume, is wealthy, has a, somewhat of a large space for the church in that city to gather uh, in his home. So that's generosity uh, in a nutshell that Philemon is definitely living out. Again, we don't know his life before Christ, but we see these markers of his life in Christ. And we can apply that to us. The gospel makes you new. Because of the gospel, you are someone new. You are not the same person that you were before you met Christ, and you probably know a lot more about that than I do in just saying that broad term or that broad phrase or idea. The gospel makes you new. And just like Philemon, your life before Christ is really irrelevant, because now what matters is your life in Christ. You don't have to be defined by your previous history because you're in Christ. Because of the gospel, you're not defined by your past mistakes or your mess-ups or your old habits or former desires or former way of life because now you're in Christ. You are completely new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, completely. Not just redone and, and rebuilt and you're you virgin 2.0. No, no, you're totally different inside and out, Paul says. The old is gone, he says. The new has come, totally different. Jesus makes that difference. So let me encourage you before we move on to remember this in your everyday life. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You're a new person. So don't allow condemnation to defeat you because that is the number one tactic that the enemy will use against you, that we use against ourselves. Well, I used to be that way, or I used to do this, or I once upon a time believed that or behaved that way. But guess what? That's irrelevant. That's why I'm glad we don't have like two chapters, you know, Philemon chapter one, hey, you used to be a terrible person and you used to do these things, but chapter two, hey, now you're generous and now you love Jesus and now you love his people. We don't need to know that. So you don't have to let that define you. It should not define you. Because of the gospel, you are someone new. And that's good news. 
The second truth about the gospel is because of the gospel then, not only are we different, but then we can respond differently. So as we keep going in this letter, what we're going to discover is that Philemon, who Paul is writing to, had a, some type of personal issue, a personal conflict with another man named Onesimus. We don't know exactly the details of their falling out, their disagreement, whatever happened between them. We don't have all of the details, but we do know this. We do know from what Paul writes that we'll continue on that Onesimus and Philemon had this disagreement, this thing that happened between them. Somehow Onesimus wronged Philemon and ran away. Somehow he knew that Paul was in prison. He sort of had an idea of where Paul might be and knew that Paul and Philemon were friends. So he runs to Paul in hopes of trying to maybe figure out what, what to do. Or, hey, can you talk to this guy for me? We don't know exactly why he went there or what corresponded or what happened, but we do know that he ran, found Paul, and tried to get some help from him. And he sought this assistance from Paul. And then Paul sends Onesimus back after some time, and he makes this huge request from Philemon. When he sends Onesimus back to him, here's, as we move on, verses 8 through 12, this is the huge favor that Paul makes of Philemon here. He says, so he kind of, you know, in a way, as we'll get to, kind of butters him up a little bit. You're so faithful, and you're so generous, and you love people. So he says, that is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ, because it is the right thing for you to do. But because of our love, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner for the sake of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. So this was not part of the original plan, okay? But it happened, and it makes things really interesting as we'll continue on. We'll see that. He goes on to say, Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. Then skip down to verse 17. We're going to skip the middle section. We'll come back to it, but skip down to verse 17. Paul says it this way. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it, and I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. So Paul acknowledges to Philemon, hey, I know you've been wronged. I know you've been hurt. I know in some way, he probably knows, but we don't quite know the details. Onesimus has wronged you. He's coming back tail tucked between his legs. He's now a new person because he's met Jesus. And so he's saying, please, for the sake of the gospel, because of the gospel, respond differently to him than you might otherwise have responded. This is a big deal that we'll get into as we keep going here, but I want to look at Paul's progression that I've already alluded to a little bit, but I like his progression here when he asks for this big favor. So he starts the section that we started with. He does butter Philemon up a little bit. I know that you love Jesus, and you're, I've heard of your faith, and I've seen that it's genuine and that you love people, right? And I think, it, I think he does mean this, but then it kind of, you know, gets him going. It's like that compliment sandwich thing when you've got to correct somebody, start with the good thing they're doing, then get the bad thing in there, and then end with the good compliment again, right? Kind of Paul's doing that here, okay? He's saying, I know I'm asking a lot, 
And then here's what he says. In verse 8, he says, I could demand you as Paul the apostle to do what I want you to do. And then in verse 8, he says, you know I could command you in the name of Jesus because he expects you to do the right thing. And he says in verse 19, don't forget, you owe me your very soul. You owe me big time. I know I'm asking you a lot, but you, owe me, you already owe me one, so cash this one in is what Paul's saying. But then it, the way he words it is in verse 9, just do me a huge favor. Could you do me a solid Philemon? I, I know it's big. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to seem weird and strange, but you got to do it. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you. In verse 20, he even says, please do this. It would, and then he says, it would encourage me. So Paul was asking a big favor, but he, then what he says is, hey, put it on my tab. Whatever this guy has cheated you of, I'll pay it. However he's wronged you, I'll make, I'll personally, I'm signing my name in this letter. I'll make it right. Trust me on this. He calls in the favor. And what I love that Paul does here that I, I think is a good lesson for us, Paul calls in a personal favor to someone else, but on behalf of someone else. He's not saying do me a thing that's going to benefit me. This exchange benefits Paul in no way. Okay. So he's saying, hey, on behalf of this other person, cash this favor in that, I, that you owe me. I think that's a pretty cool idea. But what Paul's getting at here is he's telling Philemon, respond differently because of the gospel. What we know, or what we will find out, is that Philemon could punish Onesimus, but Paul's saying don't. Paul says you could imprison Onesimus when he gets back. Don't. He's saying you could make him pay with interest. Don't. I'll pay. He's saying you could even kill Onesimus when he returns. Don't. Why? Because of the gospel. He can respond differently. Paul says, I'm sending him back to you for you to forgive him. And because of the gospel, we can also respond differently. It sort of connects to the last couple weeks that we started this series out in. Because of the gospel, I don't have to respond to people in anger. Now, before the gospel, I may have. That may have been my first knee-jerk reaction to respond and lash out in anger, but I don't have to. I don't have to respond with revenge or spite, or I don't have to respond out of fear. Well, if I make the wrong move, what, what's going to happen, or what, what are they going to think, or what if it doesn't work? I don't have to live that way because of the gospel. We don't have to respond how we feel in the moment. Because of the gospel, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us that will give us patience. I can wait before I respond and maybe respond better. I can consider options before I make one to maybe make a better one. I can do that because of the gospel. I can ask the Holy Spirit for self-control. I can extend grace to others because, not because I'm so gracious, right? Because the Holy Spirit, because of the gospel, working itself out in me and through me, I can respond differently. And I don't have to respond how even I'm allowed to. So if we go to another letter of Paul in 1 Corinthians, both in chapter 6 and in chapter 10, he uses the same line of reasoning here in his letter to the Corinthians. He says, well, about two, different, to, two totally different topics. He says, well, you say, everything is lawful for me to do. I can do anything I want, even in Christ. And Paul says, yeah, but not everything that you can do, you should do. He says, it's lawful, but not beneficial. And then in chapter 10, he says, you say everything is lawful for me to do, but I say I will not be mastered by anything. So again, not, anger is not always sinful. Not always. Sometimes it is, but it's not always, okay? 
But if I continually respond with that anger, even if it's sometimes righteous anger, is that always best? Not always, right? I, I, we, we are built and hardwired with emotions on purpose. They're not wrong. They're not bad. They're not sinful in and of themselves. But if I am led by my emotions, I'm actually controlled by my emotions. If I can't keep them in check through the power of the Holy Spirit, through self-discipline, self-control, then I'm going to be mastered by my emotions. So the two questions that Paul would say here is to ask before we say or do anything is, can I do this thing? If yes, then can. If not, discussion over. Do not do that thing. Okay, it's easy. But if, if I can do it, the second question is, should I do it? Is it the wise thing to do? Is it the prudent thing to do? Is it the expedient thing to do? Is it going to be helpful or harmful, in some, even in a small way? And those are the questions that uh, I think Paul is trying to work Philemon through that we need to work through as well. Not just can I, but should I? We can respond differently because of the gospel. We can ask questions like, will this be helpful? Will this be positive? Am I allowing certain things and emotions to master me? So we can and should respond differently because of the gospel. And then here's the third truth about our lives because of the gospel, and that is simply this. Because of the gospel, small changes have big impact. Because of the gospel, small changes have big impact. Now, there's a plot twist. If you're not familiar with this book of the Bible or this story or this person, there is a plot twist I've intentionally left out for a reason, and we're going to read it right now. Philemon, we're going to move back up, Philemon verses 13 through 16. So we know that Philemon and Onesimus have had a falling out, two men, but now we're going to learn who Onesimus is, and that's the plot twist. Here we go, Philemon verse 13. Paul says, I wanted to keep Onesimus here with me while I am in these chains for preaching the good news and he would have helped me on your behalf, but I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord." So the plot twist here is that Onesimus is Philemon's slave. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He and his master Philemon have had a falling out. Onesimus has run away in search of Paul for help and assistance in whatever this is. Or, hey, will you talk to him for me? Or will you figure this out? He'll listen to you. If I go back, I'm as good as dead. But if you can talk to him first, maybe things will end differently than I'm afraid that they will. So that's the plot twist here. Now, I'm going to maybe get in a lot of trouble here for about five or six minutes, but I feel I have to ask this question because it's, it's a question that people ask a lot about this passage in particular and a lot of others in the Bible. So it's a bit of an aside, but the idea again is small changes equal big impact because of the gospel, okay? So when people read this book of the Bible and many others, there's a question that comes up, and that question is, why doesn't the Bible openly forbid slavery? We're going to go there for, like I said, five or six minutes, which is not, it's enough time to get me in trouble and not enough time to talk me out of trouble, but I'm going to toe that line anyway. I, I debated all week long. I was going to start with this at the beginning, and then like Wednesday, Thursday, I'm like, no, I'm going to take it out, and then Thursday, I'm like, I'm going to put it in, and so here we go. Um, 
Let me just say this. None of, okay. Nothing of what I'm saying is going to condone slavery. Okay, so let me just, I'm going to say that a few times throughout because I'm going to try to explain this in a fair and biblical way without getting myself canceled. Okay, here we go. Let me say it this way. Biblically sanctioned slavery created small changes that subversively over time helped to then, a long time later, eliminate slavery as we think of it. Now, there is this truth that must be said. Slavery is a thing that's existed since people have existed, okay? Every time period, every people group, everywhere, ever, there has been some type of slavery, there's been owners and masters. All It didn't just happen 400 years ago in the transatlantic slave trade. Okay? It's, it's forever. Okay? I think that's something that we hear a lot. It's just not true. And much of ancient slavery did look like what we might think slavery is. There's also this debate, well, we try to make ancient slavery a better form. Not really. I mean, have you read Exodus? Not really. Right? We're working these people to death to build our pyramids and build our stuff. So, no, that's not true, okay? So much of ancient slavery looks similar to the antebellum chattel slavery that we are familiar with here in the West. People were captured. They were not seen as human. They were seen as property. There's no rights, no protections for them. However, biblical slavery is quite different. Even Old Testament slavery, much of it uh, is seen more as in a servitudinal way much of it was more cultural in its design. Much of it was more preservation than oppression. Uh, and much of it was even to some degree fairly voluntary. Uh, if you want to read about this fun topic in the Old Testament, uh, you can go to Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 15, Deuteronomy 23. It kind of lists a lot of laws with servants and masters, slaves and masters. Let me just give you some, some here's how Biblical, even Old Testament slavery differed from almost any other in the history of the world. So according to Old Testament law, kidnapping is a capital offense. So you can't go to some other country and take people as your slaves because when you come back with them, they're going to kill you for kidnapping. It's a capital offense. According to Old Testament law, most, most slavery within the Old Testament in the law is intraracial. It is Jews being slaved to other Jews. Okay? So it's, again, it's not we're taking another people group to make them our own. There are occasions, especially in times of war, where prisoners of war become slaves. Most of the law does not talk about that. It's mostly intra-racial. Uh, other provisions in the Old Testament law with slavery, if a slave was injured by the master, there is some provision, it seems, for the owner to pay for whatever medical care there is. If a servant is severely injured, they are to be freed immediately. If a servant is killed by the master, that master then can be killed. Uh, male Hebrew slaves are freed every seven years. It's called the, every seven year was the Sabbath year. So every male Hebrew slave, according to Old Testament law, is automatically freed. No matter how much you owed or what you did, doesn't matter. Okay? And as, as you look through the Old Testament law, servants in Old Testament law are given much more personhood, much many more rights and protections than any other ancient law code that ever has existed. Okay, So ancient slavery is not technically a whole lot different than what we would think of in our more modern Western culture, but biblical slavery is quite different. And when you look at that, you have to say it's these small changes that would have led eventually to a big impact. Um, how much trouble do I want to get into? Um, 
Okay, now, okay, let's go to the New Testament. Because Paul talks about slavery a bit in the New Testament as well. But again, it's small changes, even in Philemon here, small changes to us that culturally in its time and place are not small at all. So by the New Testament, Paul makes more of these small changes. In many of his letters, he tells masters, don't mistreat your servants. Don't mistreat your slaves. Okay? And in the Roman Empire in which Paul lived, it's estimated there are maybe as many slaves as there are free people in the Roman Empire. Half of the, half of the empire or more are slave labor. And so Paul's point here is not to overthrow the entire empire by telling every Christian to free every slave all the time. Now, he does, in this case, as we'll get to, he does tell one slave owner to free his one slave, which then, if, if this letter gets around, other Christians who are reading this, who own slaves, are like, maybe I should do the same thing. And so, what, again, what happens here is this small little ripple effect that sort of subversively gets this little thing in your craw about this topic that for most of the history of the world was not an issue. Slavery was just a thing for the first however many, to like 300 years ago, okay? It wasn't seen as this huge mark on society like we have it now, which is something that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. So, and surprised by joy, he mentioned this little thing, but it just, blow, it just blows my mind. It's this idea that because I know better now, everyone else that came before me was just terrible. Because as societies we've advanced and, got, and gotten better and more civilized, everybody before me can, contributed really nothing to society, right? So we have that mindset that we just think that we're all better now, but that's really not the case. And let's get back to Philemon. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. So my email is stephen at firstcenturykc.com. <laughs> Philemon is, hear this, Philemon is not a Christian who owned slaves. Philemon is a slave owner who became a Christian. You hear that? Philemon is not a Christian who owned a slave. He is a slave owner who became a Christian. And at this time, again, at this time and place in the world, it was just an economic way of life. And so he would never, it would never have just occurred to him, I get saved, free the slaves. It just would never, that was not the way that the world worked at that time. But now, because of the gospel, what Paul does say in his letters is, how I look at my slaves is going to change. They, they, they do have value. They are also made in God's image. They do have divine worth built into them just because they are human. That's a, maybe a small thing, but that's a revolutionary idea that every Christian who owned a slave must wrestle with at some point, even in the ancient world. The thought of how they treated them and thought of them would have changed. So um, I'm going to skip that, going to skip that. So Paul's focus here is not, the focus of Paul's letters is not to free all the slaves physically. His point is the gospel, to free every spiritual slave, including some physical slaves. So think of the impact, again, that Paul, what Paul is saying here. The, the small change, it has a big impact. He, Onesimus, the slave, has now become a Christian. And so Paul is telling his master, hopefully former master, free him because of the gospel. Free him because of the, he's a brother in Christ. That's revolutionary. It's a totally new way 
of thinking, and it's going to have ripple effects both in Rome and then beyond. It's subversive, but culturally revolutionary. Let's apply it to our lives really quickly here, the same idea. In your life, small change can have big impact. Because you might know that you're different now that you're in Christ from before, but that progress may seem really small to you. It may seem really insignificant to you. Just like when I live with my son every day, I don't notice that he's now suddenly as tall as I am. But when we go home to visit my family for Christmas, they're going to be like, who is this person? <laughs> and where did your son go? You know, it's going to be one of those things. Because it's oh, every day over time, it's just little, like I don't see in my, maybe I'm growing in grace, but I don't see that. Like maybe I'm more patient than I used to be. I don't notice that. But guess what? People that don't, don't, don't live with you are going to see that. Even some people that do live with you are going to see that change over time. Man, a year ago, if we had this discussion, you would have ripped me to shreds. But now you're so patient and you listen and you're just loving. It's like, what happened? Because of the gospel, small changes can equal a big impact in your life. It may seem small and incremental to you, but to others, it is not small. And we don't have to make this kind of this big show, right? I'm doing this for Jesus! You can, right? You can. But ideally, I think what Philemon shows us, I'm just living my life because of the gospel, and it has a huge impact. And then people start to ask what's going on. What happened to you? How did you change? What's your secret? What's going on? And then we get to say it's because of the gospel. It's because of, it's because of Jesus, right? So it's not this big show that we're making. Philemon's not trying to be extravagant with his faith. He's just doing it. And Paul says, I'm noticing, everyone's noticing, small changes can have a big impact. And that's why in Matthew 5, Jesus says, just let your light shine before men. So they see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. It's just living out your faith every day. As imperfect as we do, as imperfect as we are, as hard as that may seem, as slow as that progress may feel, small changes can have a big impact. Here's the final truth that we'll look at for just a couple minutes here. The, the fourth truth is because of the gospel, we're equals working together. Because of the gospel, we're equals working together. Let's look at some more of this letter to Philemon, verses 16 and 17. Uh, we've read some of this, but let's look at it again. Paul says, He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And then skip down to verse 21. Paul says, I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Again, a little bit of a guilt trip there at the end, a little bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know. I know you'll do this and more, okay. Paul is asking a big favor. He's saying, Philemon, take Onesimus back, but forgive him, free him, and then see him as your equal. That is not a small thing that Paul's asking. This person that you have owned as your property, now in Christ, see him as your equal. Paul says, welcome him as you'd welcome me. If, if Paul came to your house, your house would be so clean, wouldn't it? You would cook the finest meal because Paul is coming to your house. The pillows are fluffed, light, you're, the candles are lit, everything is perfect. So Paul's saying, pretend as if I'm coming to your house, but it's actually your former slave. Welcome him as you would welcome me. In Christ, he says you are equals. And New Testament scholar and author N.T. Wright about this letter, he writes this. I want you to hear this. 
He says, Paul is not sending Onesimus back with a glint in his eye and a swagger in his step, which says cheerfully or even cheekily to Philemon, Paul is telling you to set me free. Paul is sending him back into a dangerous and difficult situation in which he will express a proper sorrow for anything he has done wrong and a basic request, please allow me back without punishment and I will serve you forever. So Jesus tells this story of the prodigal son. Father has two sons. The youngest son says, hey, dad, I want to get out of this stupid small town. He takes the cut of his inheritance, runs off, squanders all of his wealth until he's literally eating with pigs. So Jesus says when the, when the son came to his senses, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go back home to my father and beg him to take me back as his servant. So the son goes back toward home. The father sees him far from far off, runs back, embraces him, not as a servant, but as his son, gives him a ring, not as a servant, but as a son, gives him his robe, not as a servant, but as a son. And the son's about to give this prepared speech. You know, father, I'm sorry. I've sinned against heaven and you. Please take me back as your servant. And the dad says, no, stop, 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 stop. My son has returned home. Let's throw a party. I think Paul is getting this same idea here. Onesimus is a prodigal slave. So he's humbly returning with this big request from Paul to receive him, not as a slave, but as a brother, as an equal. And it's because of the gospel. And as we close, it's this Greek word that Paul uses in this last section, this word koinonia. You may have heard this word before. This Greek word koinonia that means fellowship or partnership. So Paul uses it at the beginning in chapter 1. He calls Philemon his co-worker in the work of the gospel. And then here in verse 17, he says, If you consider me as your partner, welcome Onesimus back as you'd welcome me. It's koinonia. I cannot overestimate how revolutionary this idea is from Paul. Because Philemon probably sees himself in between Paul and Onesimus, right? Paul is like the man, he loves Jesus. He's spreading the gospel. He's starting churches. He's writing the Bible. He's way up here, and I'm kind of here in the middle. And then we got Onesimus, my house slave, and he's fine. I mean, he's great. He, you know, we get along, but he's down here. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. In the gospel, Paul, Philemon, we're equals. We're equals. We're partners. And then he says, but guess what? The bottom part of that also tracks that now in Christ, you and Onesimus are equals in Christ. So he's making this big ask, but he's trying to make him change his entire way of thinking. He writes this personally to Philemon in this letter, but he also probably at the same time writes the letter to the Colossians that we've already studied. And it, it, it's very, I would say, highly plausible, even possible, that Onesimus, when Paul has him come back, he has two letters with him. And one is to Philemon personally, so when Onesimus comes back, kind of not sure what's going to happen because he hasn't read this letter from Paul yet. He just he sees his runaway slave coming home. What's going to happen? So he hurries up and he says, hey, 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 wait. I know before you say anything, I got two letters from Paul. Yeah, I met him in prison. I'm a Christian now. This is great. Read this letter first, personal letter. And then here's your next sermon series at church, you know, the letter of Colossians. That's kind of what happens here. And so Philemon reads the first letter saying, hey, forgive him, free him, he's your equal. And it's like, well, I got I to gotta process that. I got to think about that for a second. And then in church on Sunday, when they read Colossians chapter uh, 3, verse 11, here's what Paul writes to the church. He says, 
Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, that's a Central Asian people group. There is no slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So uh, Philemon gets this personal letter. It maybe has a couple days to process what Paul's saying to him. And then in church, maybe he's reading this out loud to the church. He's like, oh, Paul, you put me in a corner here, didn't you, buddy? You, put, you, really, you really got me here because it, it was a private thing, I thought. Now you're saying there's no slave or free. We're all equal in Christ. Come on, Paul. And it gets even worse because in chapter 4, Onesimus is named as a faithful brother in Christ by Paul that is read out loud to the church in Philemon's house. Can you imagine that? They're sitting there not having read Philemon yet because Philemon's read that because it's to him. And they're hearing this read out loud, Onesimus, our brother. And they're probably like looking over in their direction. Like, what happened that, that, that Paul's writing this to us? So now it's a public matter that kind of goes in. But I love this idea that this koinonia, we're equals, we're partners working together. It's the same here. What we're doing right now is koinonia. We're partnering, working, laboring together for the sake of the gospel because of the gospel. So it's not like pastor is up here and parishioner is down here. It's not like if you've been, you know, I've been, I've been a Christian now for 30 years, right? And maybe you've been a Christian for 30 minutes. Guess what? We're equal in the eyes of Christ. There's no distinction. There's no Jew, Greek, slave, free. It's Christ is all and is in all. It's not, I've been doing this for a while, so I'm level eight, and you're level one, you're a noob, you got to figure this thing out in advance, and it's like, no, 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 we're, we're equals, we're working together for the sake of the gospel, and that is what is unique to the Christian faith, is that people who have no business belonging together in any other setting belong together in Christ. The rich and the poor belong together in Christ. The slave and the free belong together in Christ. Paul's saying this is a new thing. This is a totally new idea that we all belong together in Christ. We're partners working together for the gospel because of the gospel. So because of the gospel, you are new. You are different, which means you can respond and live differently to then make a difference, and then we can leverage our differences to work together to further the gospel all because of the gospel. Let's pray. God, we thank you that the gospel is powerful. It changes everything. Those of us who have received it, who have accepted it, are new. We are not who we used to be. We are not our past. We are not a list of mistakes. We are not failures. We are made new. Thank you for changing us, and thank you that you change us from the inside out, that then we can respond differently, live differently, act and react differently. The gospel is powerful. Thank you that these changes that happen may seem small, but these small changes can have a big impact. Help us, as, as Jesus, as you said, to let our light shine before others so they can see our good works and praise our Father in heaven. It doesn't have to be huge, big things, but our everyday life, our everyday witness can have huge ripple effects in the lives of those around us. And because of the gospel, you've called each of us and you want to use each of us to make that difference. Not just the experienced pro who's been doing this for decades, not just the pastor, not just church leaders, but you want to use each of us, as different as we are, to be equals 
to be partners, to be each a part of the body of Christ, living out our faith, doing our part to serve you and serve others through the gospel because of the gospel. Thank you for the power of the gospel, that it does change everything, never to be the same. It's a revolutionary thing for the Son of God to come here to die for us and then send us on mission to tell the world about him. That changes everything and everyone. And so I pray that we would live this way, do our part, and change the world for the sake of the gospel because of the gospel. And I thank you for it in Jesus' name.